of drinks that I ain't drunk Lots of pretty thoughts that I ain't thought Oh yeah Lord, there's still so many lonely girls In this best of all possible Manufacturing Descent since 1996. This is hell today on the show. We've been told we are living in the Anthropocene, a new geological age during which human activity has replaced nature as the most dominant influence on the climate and environment. Nature has finally succumbed to human activity and we now control the planet's destiny. It's all in our hands. And from here on out, nature is playing second fiddle to us. But if that's the case, you'd think humanity would have a better control over nature instead of what it currently appears to have, nature having overwhelming power over us. It, is it possible that the concept of the Anthropocene oversimplifies our current state and what our current state really needs is a deep reconsideration of exactly what the Anthropocene means and a complete reevaluation of conservation in our new age, whatever it is. In a few minutes, we'll talk to sociologists Bram Boucher and Robert Fletcher co-authors of The Conservation Revolution, Radical Ideas for Saving Nature Beyond the Anthropocene. Bram is professor and chair of the Sociology Development and Change Group at Wagonina University and holds visiting positions at the University of Johannesburg and Stellenbosch University. Bram is one of the senior editors of the open access journal Conservation and Society. You can find out more about Bram at bramboucher.com. Robert is associate professor in sociology in the Sociology of Development and Change group at Wagonina University in the Netherlands as well. Robert is co-editor-in-chief of GeoForum and associate editor of Conservation and Society, which can be found at conservationandsociety.org. We are certain that Robert will be joining us. We'll be finding out uh, shortly if Bram can as well. I'm your Bitter Blind Broke Gap Tooth radio show podcast live stream host Chuck Mertz producing this week's show in alphabetical order. Alex Jerry. Alex, how was your weekend? I got out. Uh, we got Brom too. Oh, you do got it. Brom. 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 Oh, okay. Excuse I, me? I can't stop this thing happening. One sec. <laughs> uh, the computer that plays music also rings on Skype, and we don't use it for Skype, uh, but it just rings on this channel. Sorry about that. Um, I kind of like that ring. Yeah, well, I, if you like it, then I can stop trying to uh, <laughs> suppress it when it's playing all the damn time. Um, I was just saying, when you uh, started the... When you named the show This Is Hell in 1998, did you ever think you'd have... A two-year-old wandering around the school, uh, wandering around the halls of preschool, wearing a trucker cap that says "This is hell" on it. <laughs> that was my end goal, and now that I've achieved that goal, we can quit doing the show. Also producing this week's show, Jonah Tomko Smith. Jonah, how was your weekend? Uh, it was pretty good. I read a Snopes article this morning <laughs> confirming that. Uh, Debunking the myth that uh, Pete Buttigieg kills dogs so I can finally <laughs> vote for him with a clear conscience. 
I bet that took a lot of evidence, a lot of witnesses, a lot of testimony to prove. It was a bad article, honestly. Don't read it. <laughs> Brave enough to be live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is hell. And either Alex or Jonah has this week's hangover cure. I'm certain one of you does. Hi, Jonah here. Uh, <laughs> this week's hangover cure is one second. Uh, Argentina's favorite Fernet Cone Coca. According to the Week.com article, the history of Argentina's most popular hangover cure, uh, sometimes referred to as a Fernando or a Fernandito, uh, Fernet Con Coca is made by mixing the Amaro Fernet Branca with Coca-Cola, serving it tall over ice. Writer Lauren Shockey explains, I'll be the first to admit that the Argentinian tipple is an acquired taste. It's at once bitter, sweet, minty, and herbaceous. But the drink holds a special place in my heart as the quintessential hair of the dog cocktail. Shockey adds, Fernet Branca has long been hailed as a cure for, well, almost every ailment from cholera to indigestion. Its recipe is a well-kept secret containing a proprietary blend of 27 herbs, among them chamomile, rhubarb, cinnamon, iris, saffron, zedoary, and myrrh. Uh, Coca-Cola itself, prepared from a highly guarded secret recipe, has been dubbed the Red Ambulance for its ability to cure nausea, stomach pains, and everything in between. So it's only natural that these two liquid cure-alls would combine to form a powerful hangover remedy. That makes this week's hangover cure Argentina's favorite, Fernet con Coca. A very good read. By the way, calling Coca-Cola the Red Ambulance... That gives a whole bunch of different connotations for me and the way that my stomach reacts to Coca-Cola. You are listening to God's favorite radio show. Prove me wrong. This is hell. As we hurtle toward near-term societal collapse caused by human-induced climate change, capitalism is doing everything it can to accelerate that process and repudiate profits of an apocalyptic magnitude that will be devastating to all of capital's competition. Here on planet Earth, we know more than ever that burning fossil fuels causes global warming, yet more fossils are mined than ever by the market's robotic revolution that has overthrown human labor and now excavates at a rapacious pace never before imagined, with further advances in automation and logistics, allowing profiteers to destroy the planet at what should be an alarming rate, but for whatever reason, still isn't. The newest business models during this age before the fall will likely be seen in retrospect as having Absolutely no concern for nature, no concern for ethics, no concern for humanity. And its only concern was for being, for making lots of money and all that money to go to the very top and more the burden of suffering being imposed on the vast majority of us left down here. We know temperatures will rise as sea levels will, weather events will become more extreme in their duration and ferocity having a huge impact on global agriculture, you know, where we get our food we need to eat in order to survive. We all know it's caused by burning fossil fuels, so of course the biggest new business models are all about burning more fossil fuel than ever and doing so with services that are both exploitative and, to be honest, unnecessary. Amazon, despite what Jeff Bezos may like to tell you about his company being better for the environment than bricks and mortar stores, Amazon is horrible for the environment, and that means it's horrible for us whether we work at Amazon or not. 
as Terry Wynn, a reporter covering technology and transportation at The Goods by Vox, wrote last October that being better for the environment than actual stores' goal becomes more difficult for Amazon when speed and high demand for products are factored in, an inevitable result of free one-day shipping. Speedy delivery can create problems, according to Anne Goodchild, a University of Washington professor of civil and environmental engineering, who says, as we move towards faster delivery, it gets harder to consolidate. When we're not paying some sort of personal cost for the trip, I think it's easy to overlook how much travel we're adding. Amazon outsources its delivery to UPS, the U.S. Postal Service, and others, reports Win, which operate smaller vans, which means they carry fewer packages and need more return trips to the warehouse to pick up more. And when using freight vehicles, specifically medium and heavy-duty trucks, those are the vehicles responsible for nearly one-quarter of the carbon footprint in the transportation category, which is the top producer of U.S. carbon dioxide emissions. On top of that, contracted drivers worked under grueling conditions to meet their delivery goals, so my guess is they're probably less safe to themselves and the rest of us when they are on the roads. And that destructive business model that Wynn reported about started when we were already aware of what causes climate change and grew over a short period of time, this business model did, to become the most profitable company in the world headed by the richest man in the world. A business model that contributes to climate change aggressively is the top business model of our time. Think about that, what that says about us, what that says about the market. All of the sharing economy depends upon burning more and more fossil fuels. From Uber to Lyft to, well, you know all of them, and I don't want to accidentally make anyone aware of any of these planet-destroying corporations and suddenly say to themselves, wait, you mean I can get a pack of smokes and anything I want from the convenience store delivered to me pretty much at any hour of the day or night? Sometimes I wonder if Bezos called his corporation Amazon because in order for it to sustain its profits, we'll need to destroy the Amazon. Ride-sharing companies' business model dreams of the eventual elimination of the human driver and, like the drilling machines and mines, will be completely automated. It's as if the new business model is make money by destroying the world through automation, which is a sickening thought. That is, it was a sickening thought until I went to the mall this weekend on a Saturday at 2 in the afternoon. The service all of these earth-eating corporations provide or strive to provide in the foreseeable future is a world where we no longer have to interact with other human beings. You don't have to see the crowds, the mobs, the kind of bacchanal and orgy of consumerism, a consumerism that is like making sausage, no matter how delicious it is. You likely do not want to see how it's made, and consumerism's production is frightening. The reproduction of capitalism at the mall is... If you've not been to the mall in a while, it's pretty jarring. The only thing the disgusting display was missing, the most conspicuous consumption ever performed at the height of the Roman Empire, was a, was a vomitorium. And judging by the many possible victims of anorexia I saw walking around the mall on Saturday, there may have been one of those around, too. I'm not too sure. Don't get me wrong. There is plenty of joy to be seen at the mall. Customers seem delighted to be in this mock-up of a downtown dropped in the middle of what used to be farmland so white privilege and supremacy could still reign in the central business district instead of spending money, sending money back to the more diverse city they fled in fear and with hate. 
Sure, the joy may not be about being at the mall, although there did seem to be a lot of families and friends openly sharing what can only be described as euphoria while perusing items for sale. The joy was likely more about being with family and friends, celebrating time shared together, which is beautiful, but still you chose as the site of sharing that happiness and joy to be at the mall and not at home, instilling good feelings in younger generations about the wondrous world of the freaking mall, which is nothing more than a theme park to waste and planetary destruction. So yeah, I get it. Being able to avoid that hellscape that is the shopping mall is a great convenience, and you can enjoy that convenient life of denialism about the all-consuming machines or madness at the mall by having your stuff delivered to you at home, which makes... Amazon very attractive. We are not the one driving our car to the mall to buy stuff. Amazon is allowing us to brag to our friends. Yeah, I don't drive. I bike to work every day while getting boxes with single items in them waiting at the front door back home with goods shipped in from around the world, all very far away and beyond what we see when we buy online. Amazon at once separates us from the ugliness of the market while inundating us with theirs, which is only a few clicks away and conveniently accessible in every room in our homes, if not in our pocket or hand right now. Amazon surrounds us with an invisible market that we can literally exist in every moment of every day with our virtual assistant Alexa, whose constant surveillance is willingly allowed by an industry unwilling to consider its implications on our very freedom, including privacy, even their role in normalizing a willingness to give up that privacy, indoctrinating us into their big brother world of tomorrow. We're rushing toward the end of the world and contributing to its destruction more than ever as we take the destructive capacity out of our feeble human hands and give it the power of automation to finally do in the planet for good while investors make a killing by not needing human labor as we experience both the suffering of poverty and then the fatal crushing blow that is global devastation. And luckily, as a Prime member, I get that devastation with free one-day delivery. Proving, yet again... This is hell coming up. The primary commodity industry of resource extraction is changing the way. Oh, sorry, wrong intro there. Uh, we are living in the Anthropocene, or are we? We'll be considering that in just a moment. We'll also have rotten history and what's happening on the rest of this week's shows. Noam Chomsky called This Is Hell Sanity in Talk Radio. So clearly and sadly, Noam's gone insane. This is hell. We are living in the Anthropocene, a new geological age where humans are the most dominant force on Earth, even more powerful than nature itself. Or are we? How does knowing we are now the planet's most dominant force affect the way we view the planet and ideas like conservation? Here to help us understand conservation in, in what people are calling the Anthropocene, sociologist Bram Boucher and Robert Fletcher are co-authors of The Conservation Revolution, Radical Ideas of for saving nature during the Anthropocene. Bram is professor and chair of the Sociology of Development and Change group at Wagonina University and holds visiting positions at the University of Johannesburg and Stellenbosch University. You can find out more about Bram at bramboucher.com. Robert is associate professor on, in the Sociology of Development and Change group, also at Wagonina University in the Netherlands. He is co-editor-in-chief of GeoForum and associate editor of Conservation and Society, which can be found at conservationandsociety.org. First, you, Brom, welcome to This Is Hell. Well, uh, uh, glad to be there. Very good to, uh, to tune in. And uh, Robert, welcome to This Is Hell. 
Hi, happy to be here as well. Uh, so, Robert, let's start with you. Uh, you write that uh, you both of you write a revolution in converse, uh, conservation is brewing. I'm going to say conversation so many times in this interview instead of conservation. It's going to drive me nuts. Uh, a revolution in conservation is brewing. This is not necessarily an event that makes everything different. Rather, a growing urgency and pressure are building towards radical change. Uh, Robert, once I talked to a park ranger whose expertise is in forestry, and he explained that in his view, there are conservationists who want to keep nature in a certain state, conserving nature as it existed at a certain time. He also defined environmentalists as those who want nature to take its course. And I spoke with the biologist about those definitions, and while she found them interesting, she wasn't sure if that was framing it in a perfectly accurate way. So, Robert, how would you define conservationism, and how is conservationism different from environmentalism, or are they the same thing? Um, well, first off, there's lots of different approaches to conservation, and that's one of the things that we really lay out in our book. It's a, it's a conversation among uh, different positions, different strategies, uh, none of which really agree on essentially what they're doing uh, and what it really means. But um, at the, the base of it all has been this history of trying to do exactly what this, uh, this ranger um, suggested to you, to try to take nature, to uh, cordon it off uh, from human activity, and to try to preserve it in a state that um, at least it seems to be pristine, even though it, uh, it isn't necessarily. Um, so conservation, I would say, um, you know, in that form, but also in other forms that, that we discuss, is one aspect of environmentalism. But of course, environmentalism can take very different forms that don't necessarily have to do with with conservation uh, itself. So I'd say uh, conservation is a subset of uh, um, environmentalism. So, Brahm, what is the pristine time that they look to? Because this sounds like nostalgia for a past, and often when that happens, that past is misremembered, fictionalized, becomes something even mythical. So, what, it, Brahm, what is the pristine past conservationists look to, and what does believing that is the pre, uh, pristine past say to us about the state of conservationism? That's a very good question. I mean, so they don't really, many of the conservationists that we're talking about don't really know that themselves. And they're having the hardest time actually defining the baseline, right? What is the baseline that sort of determines what kind of pristineness we're actually talking about? And because this is impossible to actually, you know, decide on, because we, we, we literally can't get back in time to, you know, to look at what it was before. And I think we, we, will, be, we will be surprised to see how many people there, you know, have always sort of been, right, and, and influencing landscapes in, in, in one way or another. Um, the easiest way to kind of solve that problem is to sort of have this idea of wilderness without people sort of front and center um, as part of that imaginary of pristine nature. Um, so in the literature, again, the, the, the question of baselines becomes becomes really important. And at some point, you need to establish this kind of baseline and then work towards that to re-establish that uh, in the future. So in the Netherlands, there's a very sort of interesting local park here where the idea of a baseline was very different from the standard ideas of baselines for European nature. So the, the, the standard idea was it's all forests. It's it's forested. It's thick with forests. But an alternative baseline that was suggested was maybe it looks more like the Serengeti, maybe it's more open grasslands and things like that. 
So why don't we try to recreate this kind of nature based on these grasslands? And you get a very different type of uh, nature reserve as a consequence, of course. And we think that these ideas are, are very interesting. They, they tell us a lot about how we live with nature today, but they don't necessarily say a lot about what we can do to conserve nature. Because they are, they are imaginaries. They, they, don't, they don't tell us how do we live with nature and with biodiversity currently, and how does that fit in with broader sort of political economic contexts. And that is what we try to uh, focus our analysis on in the book. Robert, let me follow up on uh, Brahm's response to that question just real quickly. So where do we get that baseline from? Is that based on some... Uh, was there a period of romanticism about nature that when that period came about, all of a sudden we came up with this idea of this pristine time in nature? Where do we get that baseline from? Because I think that might reveal something about the way the conservationists view conservation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's very true. So the baseline almost always is right before uh, people showed up in any given landscape. Now, how do you determine that? You can determine that in different ways. I mean, you can actually do you know, more ecological methods like um, you know, going down to the earth and trying to figure out you know, what actually existed uh, at that point in time. But usually you just have this idea that um, what existed before was the environment that populated with the plants and animals that you see only more of you know, in, in different varieties, um, just with the, the, the difference that, that humans weren't part of it. Right? And so the main aim then is to get the humans out and to allow nature to take its course, usually, um, without the, the influence uh, of these people. And so usually now, what we do uh, is we get a baseline for what um, pristine nature used to look like uh, from uh, parks and protected areas um, where the former inhabitants uh, have been cleared out of. Um, and so it appears to be pristine nature. These are the things that we always tend to see in, uh, in nature uh, documentaries. Um, it really looks like uh, the kind of pristine nature that we imagine would have been found before humans showed up on the scene, but is reality is in reality the result of um, a very you know human processes and, and long periods of occupation and and change. So it really muddies the idea of you know what a pristine baseline could even be. Brom, you and Robert write that in the last decade, a number of radical alternate, alternate uh, approaches to contemporary mainstream conservation have emerged. The two most prominent of these are new or Anthropocene cons conservation on the one hand and the neo-protectionist or new back to the barriers movement on the other. Together, these have caused quite a rift among conservationists. What is the difference between the two? I know we've already touched on it a little bit, but Brom, what is the difference between the two? Because I can't help but think by accepting the idea that we are living in the Anthropocene, we are giving agency to the same contributors to climate change in the very first place. So what is the difference between the Anthropocene and the neo-protectionist approaches? Because that's going to kind of set the framework for the rest of our conversation. Right. Yeah, indeed, that, that's a very important distinction. Um, and we do quite a, you know, a large part of the book is about, 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 you know, the core issues that separates them. And two of these is, uh, you know, are, are, are the relations between people and nature on the one hand, and the way they approach capitalism uh, and, and the broader political economy on the other hand. So new conservationists, have critiqued mainstream conservation basically by saying 
conservation has been working against the poor, as Rob was just saying, has been sort of uh, dis uh, dispossessing people, you know, from the lands that they've lived in for a long time uh, uh, by creating protected areas. But now as well, uh, still separating humans and nature uh, as, as the main sort of strategy, strategy to conserve nature and not really integrating biodiversity into the broader society and, and the economy. And that is then also their solution. And they're very kind of blunt about this. They, they literally say, you know, instead of scathing capitalism, we should really sort of integrate conservation into capitalism's culture, um, ways of doing things, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Now, neoprotectionists, or back to the barrier, kind of ecologists, as we call them in the book, uh, you know, they're very critical of both these positions. So they, they, they take sort of quite opposite of these, even though there are nuances, of course, within these broader groups. But what they would say is that we should put fairly clear boundaries, you know, between people and nature in, 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 in all kinds of ways, but also clear boundaries uh, on where humans can live, uh, how many humans there should be more generally. So, that, so most of them are very much also, um, uh, uh, you know, against the idea of further population growth, we should limit, you know, human population growth, etc. Um, and interestingly, a large part of the discussions is also about limiting growth and consumerism more generally. Some take a more political economic approach to that, you know, sort of hinting at the power structures behind it that we really try to make explicit by, by, by sort of, you know, trying to connect the history of conservation with the history of capitalism more broadly. Uh, but some leave it more vaguely at establishing limits to all kinds of things, right? Like, like what I said, to where humans can live so that you can have 50% or whatever, 30 or 50% of the earth, of the terrestrial part of the earth uh, reserved mainly for, you know, non-human nature but also limits to growth, limits to consumerism, limits to population growth, uh, and, and, and those kind of things. And so this is where they really don't see eye to eye. And, and, and we, we actually quote a couple of the discussions between them in the book, where they accuse each other of, of, of not, not, not being conservationists at all. Um, and when we actually look at it in, in, in much more detail, um, those differences, even though they seem seemed very stark in that debate that 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 they had between them, and and very publicly so, um, you know, the critique of neoprotectionists on consumerism and growth is not actually, you know, very very profound. They don't actually go into you know deeper sort of political you know power dynamics of contemporary and historical capitalism, whilst. Um, we think that the idea to mix humans and nature whilst doing that, you know, in a way that, 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 that pleases capitalist corporations is actually complete, you know, contradiction in terms. Because, you know, as I think we all know, capitalism, you know, depends on separating, on, on separations, on putting boundaries between things, on, you know, privatizing uh, different kind of uh, parts of nature and everything, you know, for commodities. So that doesn't really make sense to us. And, and this is then where we, of course, come with our broader analysis and, and, an, and an alternative way forward. 
So, Robert, then does con mainstream conservationism, does, it, it seems to be based on the view that we are stakeholders in nature and we can save it with market economics. To what extent are stakeholder approaches and capitalism as it is embraced within mainstream conservationism a threat to nature? Does the way conservationism has been approached in the past, has it played a role in nature's destruction and in climate change? Yeah, that's a very good question. Um, yeah, and it's interesting because the way conservationists have framed conservation, it's always been this this alternative, right, to capitalism. It's been this thing that tries to separate off pieces of the world, pieces of nature, uh, from the forces of of conservation. Uh, sorry, from uh, of capitalism. Um, what we do is uh, present an analysis where we try to argue that the conservation has actually been very central to the development of capitalism. Right, it was a, a big part of the enclosure movements that forced people off the land in rural areas, forced them to the cities where they became an urban proletariat. So our analysis is that conservation and capitalism have actually been closely entwined uh, from the beginning, even though uh, conservationists tend to go back and kind of erase that uh, that link in the past. Now, more recently, what conservation has tried to do is then try to um, use capitalist forces as the basis for actually generating income uh, and revenue to support conservation itself. And in this case, um, you could argue that these mechanisms have not been good uh, for for nature, not been good for the environment, but they haven't been wholly destructive of it. What they've been mostly problematic in terms of is obscuring or disguising the things that capitalist extractive processes are doing by making it seem that these can become sustainable, that they can become offset, that they can uh, be rendered part of a sustainable capitalism more generally. So that's what I see as the real danger of these market-based mechanisms, is they keep us uh, in this illusion that we can actually use capitalism to call, solve the problems created by capitalism itself and not recognize uh, that this is, as Brahm said, a fundamental contradiction in terms and that capitalism is, is you know, the fundamental threat uh, that we really need to be facing head on. And Brahm, you and Robert write that mainstream conservation is fundamentally capitalist and steeped in nature-people dichotomies, especially through its foundational emphasis on protected areas and continued infatuation with images of wilderness and pristine natures, as you were discussing earlier. Phrased differently, mainstream conservation does not fundamentally challenge the hegemonic global capitalist order and is firmly embedded in myriad dualisms wherein humans and their society or culture as, are seen as as epistemologically and ontologically distinct from nature. Can there actually be conservation of nature without fundamentally challenging what you call the hegemonic global capitalist order? Is the capitalism of conservationism being challenged today? And is that the biggest debate within conversation? That is, is capitalism either compatible with or in competition with nature? Is that what the debate boils down to, or is that oversimplifying the debate, Brom? Well, I mean, again, a very good question. Um, I would say yes and no, and this is a bit like a standard answer for an academic. I, I, I understand that. <laughs> but you're right in that, that, that ultimately it does boil, boil down to that. But it's often phrased in ways that don't really make that explicit, right? So the, the very term capitalism seems to be very scary for many people, even though, you know, that is changing as well. I mean, I think, you know, simply looking around us uh, with the Australian fires and everything that we see around us, if you look, not, not just closely, but if you just look, I mean, it's pretty clear 
that the kind of economic model that that that, that we have these days is you know these days is, is not sustainable. Uh, but does that mean that it's also talked about in relation to conservation in, in those those ways? Um, last year there was a report that came out by IPBES, an intergovernmental panel on ecosystem services and biodiversity, and it was a really sort of landmark um, report. Not only did it conclude that over a million species are threatened with extinction, right? If we continue business as usual, so over a million species. I mean, just I mean, just imagine it. But not, but 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 next to that, it also said that we need transformational change, which is a bit of a sort of euphemistic approach to, I think, refer to, uh, you know, questioning growth and 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 those kind of things. And and increasingly within conservation circles. Uh, literally, Prince Charles of England, uh, I think two weeks ago, also said that we need a, a different political economic model. So, yes, slowly but surely, more and more people within conservation are actually questioning really sort of the foundations of of capitalism without necessarily always referring to capitalism in and of itself. Somehow or the other, and I think you know this better than, 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 than we do, Right, um, people are afraid to 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 say this, to to make this explicit, and then to, as, as Rob said, to to you know confront this head on, and that's one of the one of the, the other reasons why we wrote this book. We we just want to open that up. I mean, you know, just because we're talking about capitalism doesn't need to doesn't mean that we need to say that everybody involved in everything that that happens this day is is evil or bad for us it's a very sort of simple position namely that it's it's just obvious we need to just move beyond capitalism if we want to be sustainable because there is indeed this foundational um yeah antagonism between longer term sustainability and and um you know and 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 and, and forms of human development and so we we actually want to make that kind of a yeah a, a, a very down to earth kind of kind of normal position where we start thinking about how do we actually start doing that, right? I think I mean clear from your show it's about confronting power on the one hand, but also thinking through you know what what other other ways can we then imagine in order to build new institutions, new ways of working together, new ways of making sure people, you know, have decent food, uh, ways of living with with perhaps dangerous wildlife, as, as we are also doing research on, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, I think for us, that's also quite exciting about, about this project. Just for us, you know, having criticized this for about 15 years, and still, I, I still highly believe that that's, that's incredibly necessary, especially because capitalism is so hegemonic. But also just at some point, we've just come to the conclusion, okay, we just have to get over this. More people will need to come to that position in one way or another. It's so obvious. Let's just make that step and start thinking what that could be. We, we are speaking with sociologist Bram Boucher and Robert Fletcher, who are co-authors of The Conservation Revolution, Radical Ideas for Saving Nature Beyond the Anthropocene. Robert, does then does capitalism impose that nature-culture dichotomy upon us? Can we have 
capitalism. Can capitalism exist without that nature-culture dichotomy, that separating, that cutting off of humanity from nature? Or is that what capitalism is dependent upon for its bottom line, for its success? Mm -hmm. Another great question. Um, historically, yeah, capitalism has been one of the main forces that ends up creating that sense of separation. And I want to preface that by saying, you know, there isn't any thing called nature, right? Nature is a, itself kind of a construction. There are different species, there's different ecosystems, and dividing that into, you know, different realms, one called nature and one called culture, is one of the things that capitalism as an economic process has always done. But it's always done that in, in different ways, right? Originally, there was a separation between the country and the city, where city life was sustained by kind of cannibalizing the resources of the country. Uh, then this went global, and you had you know distinctions between um, developed and quote unquote uh, undeveloped countries. You know we had similar type of exploitative relationships um, in which certain places were rural, other places were urban, different configurations of nature and culture. And now what we're seeing is these new kind of uh, mechanisms where. Uh, pieces of nature are there cordoned off as the basis for conservation finance, right? So the idea that we actually leave resources in the ground rather than extracting them and use that non-extraction as the basis of trying to generate revenue to things like payment for environmental services, uh, the Red Plus reduced uh, um, emissions through avoided deforestation and land degradation mechanism, carbon markets, and, and those kind of things. So you still see these distinctions right, between nature areas uh, and, and cultural areas, um, but those, um, those distinctions uh, and, and where they fall uh, change over time. Now, whether that's absolutely necessary to capitalism or whether the capitalism could find a way to go beyond that and actually uh, develop a new form that didn't require, on these, uh, uh, require these, these kind of divisions, uh, I can't really speak to that. Uh, capitalism has been shown to be endlessly creative uh, and capable of morphing in ways that nobody would have predicted uh, in the past. And it was quite possible it'll continue to do that uh, uh, into the future. Brom, you and Robert write that the alternative of convivial conservation, which is an idea that you have come up with, is the most optimistic, equitable, and importantly realistic model for a conservation for the future. While the term convivial conservation may be new, many of its premises are not. Numerous indigenous, progressive, youth, emancipatory, and other movements and individuals and organizations have long been working on and engaged in alternative conservation practices and ideas that include elements of what we propose here. First, Brom, what is, how would you define convivial conservation, and can we simply take what has worked in the past and just apply it to the present? Is it, is it as simple as that? <laughs> no, certainly not. Uh, I think one of the most important things for us is that convivial conservation is not a blueprint. It's not just some kind of, and conservation and also the, the broader development scene is quite quite full of, 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 you know, these kind of magic silver bullet type solutions. Um, you know that that don't work because uh, one of the reasons that they don't work is because you know they don't take into account histories, contexts, positionalities of different people, etc., uh, etc. Et so convivial conservation for us is both sort of a, a politics, it's 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 a it's a governance kind of program, but also a set of kind of practical mechanisms, practical things that conservation could start doing, you know, immediately in order to create, stimulate change in the right direction. We don't posit convivial conservation as something that on its own could ever, you know, lead us into a sustainable world, 
right, to, to tackle or to move post-capitalism is a much broader um, kind of, you know, <laughs> kind of issue than conservation in and of itself could ever could ever hope to achieve. But conservation, of course, is very central to it because of the, the central, you know, relationship between uh, humans and, and the rest of nature, between, you know, humans and sort of the biodiversity base that, that we all depend on. Um, and, and that's where we see an important role for the conservation community um, in broader sort of post-capitalist uh, struggles. And we think that the community should, should take this on. Now, that aside, what is convivial conservation? So conviviality, you know, as an ID, right, literally means living with. So for us, that already signals, right, we must live with the rest of nature, not separate ourselves from it. Right? That, that is sort of the first sort of immediate connotation. Second, convivial conservation comes from older ideas around uh, conviviality, right? That have certain connotations in the English language, obviously, but uh, conviviality that literally means uh, the term is eutropelia, very, very, I mean, you know, funny term that most people don't use, but it's being skilled in conversation. And what we mean with that is to actually do justice to all the kind of, to, to the contradictions in the conversations that we were just talking about, move through them to find to find a way forward. So that is con convivial conservation as a politics. Now, as a set of governance mechanisms and, and more practical things, I mean, we could talk about that uh, in, in quite a bit of detail. But what we do is we separate long-term and short-term uh, measures in order to really focus on reintegrating um, humans and nature and move beyond um, global capitalism. One of them, um, I mean, I don't know how many uh, you would want to, um, want, to, uh, want to know about. One of them uh, is that we advocate a move from protected areas to promoted areas. I mean, we need to get away from this idea of protection. Uh, so one of them, uh, so the jingles that Rob has come up with as sort of a slogan for convivial conservation is from protection to connection, but literally to re-embed protected areas in their social, environmental, political surroundings in order to, uh, again, not, you know, literally discursively not separate ourselves from the rest of nature, right? Not, not to feel that we need to protect nature from humans or ourselves from ourselves, basically but that we can learn to live with different types of nature in, in more mixed uh, kind of landscapes, whereby some, of course, are wilder than others, right? Some are more human dominated, some are wilder than others, and, and, and there can be all kinds of different um, uh, gradations between those. Um, but that certainly is, is, is one step to deal with protected areas towards the future. Another one is to do with tourism. Um, Tourism is often hailed as the savior of, of, of nature uh, and brings in cash for conservation. Um, but obviously there's something rather weird and contradictory about, you know, millions and millions of people flying across the world to, you know, protect, to spend some money to protect biodiversity in, you know, faraway places as, as, as many people actually do these days. It's one of the world's largest industries, of course. Um, so we advocate a move from this this kind of superficial tourism, this 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 tick box tourism, seen that, done that, you know, five days Kruger Park, six days Costa Rica, ten days uh, wherever, 
to longer term engaged visitation so that you can do more justice to an area. You don't have to see everything. You don't have to, but also also look at the social surroundings again of these areas so that you can appreciate all kinds of natures in their, in their social contexts. Now that, that's a little bit of a harder sell, right? It's not a nice marketing slogan, but it's kind of to a degree what people have, you know, have been doing for a long time. So would that mean go back in time? No, but, but certainly, uh, learning from, you know, uh, ways in which different types of people in the world still live with all kinds of natures, you know, in ways that does justice to them and to and to biodiversity around them. And as we had a conversation last year with William Robinson, uh, so often we, where we do see economies that are dependent on tourism, uh, inequality is exacerbated within that industry on a regular basis. So, Robert, exactly. I, uh, Robert, I really love your uh, phrase of from protection to connection, uh, because one of the words that we always hear associated with environmentalism is stewardship. And I think that that term might be problematic. You two write the social scientists who accept the Anthropocene see positive potential in how this re new reality forces humans to acknowledge the extent to which their actions influence the planet and to therefore take their obligation to responsibly steward it more seriously. Is stewardship control, Robert? Is the idea of being stewards of nature nothing but a repackaging of human control over nature? Is one a slippery slope to the other? Um, yeah, I think it is a slippery slope. I don't think it necessarily needs to be thought of uh, in that way as stewardship, but, but it often is, um, and that is problematic. And it's a very fine line in there between recognizing that humans do have this tremendous influence uh, over the planet, um, you know, to the point that we're, we're really starting to uh, make it unlivable for ourselves and other species as a whole uh, due to climate change and other issues. So we actually do have this tremendous influence, but the other hand, we don't really have control, right, in some kind of larger sense. Um, and there are a lot of processes that are still uh, very much beyond our control. So somehow finding that fine line within that and recognizing both our potential then to uh, make things better for ourselves and for other species through changing the ways in which we live and which we interact with other species, while at the same time also recognizing that, you know, having some humility uh, in that process and recognizing that our control is actually less uh, than we tend to think of it and that we need to be um, you know, cognizant of the fact that there's all these other processes that happen without us. Um, our actions are going to lead to unpredictable outcomes and to be um, able to accept uh, those limitations as well. So both um, you know, trying to make sure that the things that we do do um, are done in a manner that allows us to coexist. Uh, and live sustainably with other species, while at the same time, um, you know, limiting that and trying to scale it back to the the point that we actually uh, then don't impose ourselves um, over these other uh, places uh, and species as well. It's that really fine line that we're uh, trying to get to uh, through the idea of convivial uh, conservation. But of course, it's a it's a very uh, difficult and, and tight walk. Brahm, you and Robert also write that radical comes from radix or radic, which means roots in Latin, being radical in the original etymological sense of the word, therefore has nothing to do with extremes. It rather means going to the roots. Anyone can understand that the only real solution to the conjoined environmental and developmental problems of our time must address the root causes of these problems. This meaning of radical entails attaining a coherent and logical understanding of what the roots of our problems are and how they manifest in practical reality. Brahm, looking at the root causes of today's problems can lead to 
what are believed to be uh, as radical conclusions, like the root causes often being capitalism, the root causes of many of the problems that we face, thus challenging capitalism with an anti-capitalist response. Under capitalism is considering the root causes of society's problem, Brahm, is that a radical act? I don't think so. Right? And, and, and we try to get away from this idea that talking about this in exactly the way that you propose is somehow radical in its connotation of extreme, right? And this is a very, you know, easy political trick that, that, that we've now seen so many times, whereby we are denoted as radical, as though then to put us in, in some kind of corner where what we are saying is not really realistic, is not really, you know, we, we don't really need to listen to that because it's radical. It's not at all, exactly as you say, uh, right? And, 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 and the, the proper etymological roots of radical as roots are, are so logical to us, you know, that we need to be talking about those things that, yeah, we, we feel to, to some degree, I mean, many people might not agree, but that, that, that we're pretty middle of the road in, 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 in some kind of way, right? Post, like I said before, a post-capitalist approach should be completely normal. What is currently happening in the way that capitalism is developing and the kind of leaders it is currently sort of uh, uh, bringing into power, like Trump, like Bolsonaro, like, like so many others, now that's extreme. That is totally extreme. To want to live in a, you know, on a, on, a, on a planet where you do justice to the rest of nature and have more, more equality between people, you know, that's not extreme. That, that to me should be fairly normal and, 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 and a fairly you know, easy thing to agree on. The fact that it's not says a lot about the current sort of ideological climate that we're in. And we deliberately try to go against that. So you also, uh, Robert, uh, you and Brahm also write that as part of a disturbing rise of reactionary politics in many places, the election of Jair Bolsonaro, as Brahm was just saying, in Brazil in 2018 comes to mind, it can be seen as an intensification prompted by the ongoing fallout from the 20, 2008 global economic crisis of the intimate links between financialization and militarization that capitalism, and particularly its neoliberal variant, has always displayed, and that this signals is that uh, opposition to this type of radical right politics can no longer be content to pursue the conciliatory third way or more general consensus politics institutionalized by Bill Clinton, Tony Blair, either in the overarching political realm or in conservation politics in particular. If we do not become more radical and politically astute, more positive, equal and sustainable futures will be overwhelmed and emptied of the radical groundswell from populist right-wing movements on the ascent in many places. Why can't we save the planet from climate change? Why can't we save us from fascism just by using centrism, bipartisanism, and conciliatory concessions, Robert? Now, I think the answer to that is, is quite simple. Right? Capitalism relies on sustained economic growth. And the only thing that really allows for that sustained economic growth uh, is resource extraction, right? Pulling things from the earth, turning them into com uh, commodities. Right? That has consequences both in terms of degrading landscapes, producing waste, but also in terms of climate change impacts. 
Now, up until the 2008 crisis, there was this promise in neoliberal mechanisms and market-based mechanisms that we could move away from that and develop forms of accumulation, forms of economic growth that didn't rely on extraction, that relied on some form of, of conservation, what we call in the uh, the book, the promise of uh, accumulation by conservation. And I think fundamentally, 2008 uh, dissipated that promise. It took a while for people to really catch on, but that was the consequence of it. But the economic downturn then signaled that these attempts to try to develop these other forms of accumulation just weren't working. And what we've seen then is a really strong resurgence, a really strong return to the types of extractivism that we're trying to move away from in the past, right? Because essentially those are the only things that really will allow capitalism to sustain the growth that is necessary to keep it from succumbing to its internal contradictions, right? Now, the issue with that is that it's not good for the people or for the planet, right? And so what you're going to have in the face of these intensified forms of extraction is resistance, right? Resistance by social movements, which we're seeing in many places all around the world, and also intensified form of ecological degradation, which also inspires its resistance on the part of people. And so what do you do about those forms of resistance? If you want to continue with accumulation, you have to find some way to suppress them. So it's kind of a natural result of all of these processes that um, more extreme, more right-wing uh, regimes will come into power that then uh, provide uh, the basis for capitalism to keep intensifying its extraction and that suppress the resistance that will naturally come up uh, as a result. Brom, uh, I have uh, one more question for you, and then I have one last question for each of you. Brom, you write the question of whether we should label our current era of the Anthropocene is important. A better descriptor for this new phase of human history is the Capitalocene, as argued by Andreas Malm, Jason Moore, and others. Andreas has been on our show a few times and is a fantastic guest. He's really great. His writing is spectacular. If our listeners are not aware of him, Andreas Malm, M-A-L-M. Andreas, uh, why is Capitalocene a better term to use than Anthropocene? Does capital have more control over nature than human do, humans do? Is that why we have climate change? Because capital has conquered the earth and now controls it more than humanity. Right. Exactly. I mean, Anthropocene or the, the idea of the Anthropos as some generic humanity, of course, leaves completely out of the picture how differentiated this humanity is and that certain people right, have always done more to stimulate these processes and have also structurally benefited from these kind of extractive and dominating processes than others. So there is no generic anthropos, some, some generic humanity, as Andreas Malm and others show very, very clearly. And that didn't lead, right, humanity in and of itself, just out of the blue, didn't lead to some kind of you know, situation that we find ourselves in where we face climate change, rapid earth system changes, uh, biodiversity loss, huge inequalities, etc. You know, the basis of that is indeed capital, right? Capital for me is very simply defined as putting forth money or resources to, you know, get more of those, to get more money, to get more resources, etc. So it's an endless form of, you know, a cycle of accumulation. And, and that in and of itself is the motor that, you know, that, that, that drives this, this broader system of, of, of capitalism and hence why we should call this era the Capitalocene rather than some generic Anthropocene or some other Ocene. 
uh, at the same time, we also say, yeah, I mean, we, we, we can, uh, we, we must accept then, uh, maybe not get too much into the, the semantics of that game, but sort of more the logic of the analysis behind it, because that will also lead, right, to certain other ways of looking about, you know, at this going forward. And again, for us, convivial conservation, it, that's part of the politics of it. Right? For the, the book is not just about what we propose in terms of the last chapter where we talk about you know details on the, the, the pragmatic stuff around convivial conservation, but the whole analysis leading up to that and why we should use the term capitalocene rather than anthropocene and the logic behind it, because that will hopefully help uh, people to find you know solutions in very context specific situations rather than some overarching blueprint that they can just apply we have been speaking with Wagonino University sociologists Brown Boucher and Robert Fletcher, the co-authors of The Conservation Revolution, Radical Ideas for Saving Nature Beyond the Anthropocene. One last question for each of you, and it's what we call the question from hell, the question we might hate to ask, you might hate to answer, our audience is going to hate your response. Robert, what would you say to someone who argues this is the Anthropocene because human-caused capitalism is leading to climate change, that a human-caused and controlled factor, capitalism, is causing climate change, and it is the dominant feature. So this is human-caused climate change. This is the Anthropocene because we created capitalism. I would say that you're right in that sense, but it's important to think about that a bit more deeply, get a bit more nuanced recognize all the different things that Brahm talked about in terms of the, the different um, influence of different groups of people, their embeddedness within these uh, political economic systems, and those are the things that we should be focusing on, right? The really danger of the Anthropocene frame is that it makes it seem like there's just this, been this linear progression whereby humans multiply and start degrading the ecosystem. And it's much more complicated than that. And if we just look at that, at that um, you know, simplified narrative, then it doesn't allow us to get to the roots of the issue um, that we really point to uh, as necessary uh, to be able to build the kind of sustainable future uh, that we need. And Brahm, our question from hell for you. Was the right, were conservatives, were they correct all along? Was climate change, is environmentalism nothing more than a socialist, if not communist, plot to overthrow not only the government of the United States, but global capitalism? <laughs> yeah, that's complete nonsense, of course. Obviously, um, that's a rhetorical trick. Uh, it's nothing to do with uh, left or right, whatsoever. Uh, we all live on this planet. We all need to need to deal with it. Uh, but perhaps one side of the equation, uh, you know, is simply a little bit more realistic than the other, has their eyes a little bit more open, or perhaps are less, you know, embedded in these power relations than the other, in order to look at this a little bit more clear-sighted, and on that basis, you know think about ways out that benefit all of us, including people on the right. They, too, would benefit from a healthy environment. I guarantee you that. Brahm, I really appreciate both you and Robert being on the show with us this week. Again, the name of your book is The Conservation Revolution, Radical Ideas for Saving Nature Beyond the Anthropocene. And for those of uh, listeners who heard our interview last week with Ar Martin Arbedola about his book, The Planetary Mind, that book and this book, you read them back to back and you'll have a completely different view of nature as it exists today. Thank you so much for being on our show. I cannot thank you enough. This really is a fantastic book and it made me reconsider conservation. Thanks 
so much for changing my mind. I truly appreciate it. Thank you Thanks, so Jeff. much, Chuck. Thanks. All right, take care. Live from late capitalism, where we know the price of everything but the value of nothing, this is hell. It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory, rotten history. And I've been looking forward to this rotten history for about 72 hours. And you'll know why in the very near future. In rotten history, AD 244, 1760 years ago, this Tuesday, that's today, the 19-year-old Roman Emperor Gordian III was killed by his own troops after being defeated by the Persians at the ancient city of Circassium in what is now Syria. Being 19, I'm sure he earned the job of emperor through all of his own skill. Probably a wonder kid of some kind and definitely not nepotism. The Roman Empire was in a period of bloody civil war, border insecurity, and economic collapse. Perfect time to have a 19-year-old as emperor. Young Gordian III had been made emperor six years earlier when he was only 13 in AD 238 during the so-called Year of the Six Emperors. In that year, a revolt against the tyrant Maximus had resulted in an elderly provincial governor being proclaimed Emperor Gordian I, and the frail old man had insisted that his son share power with him as Gordian the second, the father and son co-emperors, were popular with the Senate, but they only lasted one month before being attacked at Carthage by an army led by a rival uh, governor loyal to Maximus, the tyrant Gordian I had overthrown. When Gordian II was killed in the battle, his father, Gordian I, promptly committed suicide. Drama. The Senate responded by installing two new co-emperors, Pupianus and Balbius who not only mistrusted and fe feared each other, but were hated by the Praetorian Guard. I mean, come on. Would you trust Pupianus? I know I never, ever trust Pupianus. No matter how trustworthy Pupianus claims to be, after just three months in power, Pupianus and Balbius were also killed in desperation. The Senate then turned to the subject at the beginning of this day in rotten history, the terrified 13-year-old grandson of the first Gordian and nephew of the second, declaring him Emperor Gordian III. The young man struggled to grow into his role, but he died at Circassium, 1776 years ago this week in a mutiny led by the general known as Philip the Arab. Classy name. And as I have never met an Arab named Philip, I'm doubting Philip was indeed an Arab. Philip succeeded Gordian III as Roman emperor, and he too would be killed a few years later. Moral of the story, Ronaldo can get me to say poopy anus on a regular basis. And apparently with this segment of Rotten History, Roman emperors get killed a lot. And now you know. In Rotten History, 1823, 197 years ago, also today, in Vieta, the capital of Malta, which I'm probably mispronouncing, it was the last day of the public celebration of Carnival before the Catholic religious period of Lent. A church convent was doing its annual tradition of handing out free food to poor children from the area. Damn communist nuns, partly to keep the children away from the body risque confusion of the outdoor festival. God, nuns are such a drag. Malta was experiencing a famine that year, so the crowd of children was especially big, with some adults sneaking in as well, which means this moment in rotten history is about to get real ugly. 
Inside a narrow corridor, the old convent, the crowd got out of control, began pushing and shoving against the locked door. See, I told you it would get bad, and real fast. When a lamp burned out, leaving the corridor in darkness, the shoving got worse. Screams were heard as children were trampled, crushed, and suffocated. By the time people outside managed to pry the door open, more than a hundred children were dead. Which is a hell of a way to wrap up our first show this week. That's Rotten History, and this is Hell. Alex, who's on tomorrow's Wednesdays live, This Is Hell, streaming at 10 a.m. Chicago time here at This Is Hell. Yeah, we got Mark Edelman on to talk about his Jacobin piece, How Capitalism Underdeveloped Rural America. And Alex will be revealing this week's question from hell and our question from hell prize. And I will be admitting to a phobia that I've never told anybody about, ever, anyone, even my closest, most intimate friends and family members. I'll... I'm going to reveal one of my phobias. Actually, it might be my leading phobia. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show podcasting, live streaming host Chuck Mertz, producing this week's show, Alex Jerry and Jonah Tomko-Smith. I want to thank both Bram and Robert for being on our show to talk about their book, The Conservation Revolution. Thanks to Ronaldo Magaldi for allowing me to say poopy anus on a regular basis. And thanks to Alex and Jonah. Truly revolting radio, this is hell. Talk to you tomorrow. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>